Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity world where we're all at home quarantined. We know that the working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello, welcome to another episode of Castaway. We are currently recording from our new office on the fourth floor in London. So uh, welcome to the new environment. And here we have with myself, uh, Alex and Kerry. Good morning. Good to be here, Chris. And all the way from Singapore, joining us again is Tom. Morning, gents. So uh, a week of some headlines to, to point out before we go on to our news stories and then our usual mar- market updates. Gold has pushed over $2,000 and is kind of holding there this morning as well. So really starting to take a, a safe haven for all the things that Not are Not exactly around. a vote of confidence in no, the direction of the global no, economy, is exactly. it? Exactly. So. Uh, but talking of, of, of that, was some more confidence in Argentina. They've managed to uh, strike a, uh, a debt agreement after restructuring breakthroughs. So good news there for, for Argentina, but also uh, another bit where I'm sure many people are aware of the, the explosion which happened in, in Beirut. And um, Kerry, you've got a story on that which you're going to going to elaborate a bit more on that. So why don't we dive straight in with that story, Kerry? Sure. And, and this week, I have to say, I picked a, a slightly more upmarket news source in The Guardian. Um, good to hear. Good but, to hear. Uh, uh, the Guardian story is about the substance that caused it, uh, basically assigning the blast to the 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate that was stored at the port with very little safeguard. And I think one of the key takeaways here. Uh, among many, many things uh, in, in this horrific incident is uh, is the, the bureaucratic inertia uh, paired with a lack of safety measures and perhaps I think exacerbated by the economic crisis overtaking Lebanon that has led to uh, probably a lot of people ignoring um, some, some pressing problems such as nearly 3,000 tons of explosive fertilizer stored at the port with, with no safeguards. Um, and, and I think it's a lesson in the dangers of both that bureaucratic inertia, but also some of the, the fallout side effects of this crisis as it overtakes uh, the less rich countries in the world um, and, and presents them with situations in which oversight simply disappears because they're overwhelmed. Their governmental systems are, are becoming overwhelmed with, uh, with dealing with the economic fallout of this global catastrophe. Um, but, you know, to summarize, it, this is very clearly an accident. Even the Lebanese seem to think this is not an act of terrorism at this point, uh, regardless, strangely enough, of what President Trump said last night in his news conference. Um, uh, it appears that a welder probably set off a fire that then triggered uh, this this nearly 3,000 tons of uh, ammonium nitrate that was stored at the port, um, which had the effect, as, as uh, the Lebanese prime minister said, of a, of a low-yield nuclear weapon essentially going off um, leveling nearly two square miles of the port area of Beirut. Um, uh, it's the damage is indescribable, but as I said, I think one of the themes here is this this danger uh, that we all forget that uh, that we're all so focused on the economic catastrophe, the side effects of it are now becoming increasingly apparent as well. I'm sure there'll be a lot of things coming out yeah. uh, after this kind of economic crisis and you know a medical crisis which is so focused, governments and everyone else, that there'll be loads of other things which have gone unnoticed, which we won't find out till, till afterwards. Exactly. And sometimes they exactly. end up in real yeah. terrible accidents. Exactly. Let's move on to our next story. Tom, why don't we move over to you? You've got a story from the South China Morning Post about Vale. 
Yeah. Um, so, um, given that we've been talking about Vale and iron ore shipments quite a lot of late, uh, it seemed quite fitting uh, when I read this this week. Um, so, essentially, um, what the article was talking about is China's sort of increasing appetite for iron ore is being borne out in the fact that they are um, going to build four new deep water ports um, for purely for the purpose of taking Vale Maxes, um, which are the biggest ships, uh, biggest dry bulk ships on the ocean. Um, they carry 380 to 400,000 deadweight tons of iron ore, and they were designed specifically for Vale to move iron ore from Brazil into China. Um, so the sort of advent of this um, decision, I suppose, is a vote of confidence in Brazilian Brazilian iron ore. Um, it's a vote of confidence in Vale and their ability to deliver it, um, given everything that we've been talking about the past few months on the podcast. Um, but also, I think quite interestingly, um, it could start to impact on sort of the trade flows of iron ore. Now, all of almost all of Vale's iron ore flows into China. Um, China imports about 900 million tonnes a year of iron ore, but the vast, not the vast majority, but the majority comes from Australia currently. Now, if Vale is able to step up production and it's opening up some northern mines that will increase capacity quite materially um, over the next few years, in conjunction with these um, new Vale Max ports that are being opened up in China to take delivery of this particular, you know, these, these these cargoes, it could start to have a material impact on those trade flows. And given the background of the worsening relationships between Australia and China, and um, China and generally the West, um, you know, it seems quite a reasonable hedge um, for China, and and also, you know, great news for Vale if they are able to, to get, you know, the openings of these new northern mines through court, um, get the approvals um, and, and get these ports built in a timely manner. So interesting from a couple of perspectives. But do you think, Tom, in terms of that, that it may impact, you know, be looking forward to impacting that price, which we've seen slowly chock up, up and up and up over the, the period that we've been recording these podcasts well, I mean, before it really impacts on Australia? I, I think... Um, yeah, this is a obviously long-term infrastructure. Um, the, these are not going to be uh, coming on loan overnight, and the mines are certainly not going to be coming on loan overnight uh, either. Um, I think, yeah, you know, I'll talk. I'll touch on it later when we um, review our, our our product lines. But I think what most people are sort of saying now is that short-term, probably still expect pricing to to go up and up and up. But if uh, but on, over the more medium long term, it, it will correct. Uh, we'll, we'll go into why in a bit. But um, the the increased production that Vale is talking about from it from its northern mines, you know, it's 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 a significant increase on what they're currently able to produce. You know, in factors of you know fifty percent increase on what they're currently able to produce. So that much new capacity coming online in normal environments, you would expect that to have. A material impact on price to the downside, um, but I guess it ha- it depends what happens to demand over that that period as well. You know, if we're still in this holding pattern of global recovery as stuff comes online, then you know price could theoretically get absolutely crushed from where we are currently. It's so. Very 
very interesting comment as well by China um, on, uh, as you say, on, on substitution, I think, for Australian iron ore, because, yeah. you know, the rate of growth of Chinese imports has slowed over the last several years. So, you know, I, I really don't think anyone's expecting massive sort of 10, 15 percent growth year on year in terms of Chinese imports overall, uh, which suggests that they're making these investments deliberately to substitute or diversify yeah. their uh their, their supply chain rather than in order to increase overall capacity to yes. their blast furnaces. It's like a mirroring of what other companies or other countries are doing for uh, diversifying away from China. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We touched on this last week with yeah. China also looking to West Africa, for example. So, yeah, it's, cool. it's fascinating. Oh, well, let's move on. Alex, why don't we go to your story? You've got one about uh, renewables from BP. Yeah. The article's from a website called Renews.biz, and it's about BP unveiling some of their goals for 2030. Um, they're targeting 50 gigawatts of net renewable generating capacity by 2030, a 20-fold increase from 2019. And that's very much part of their wide-ranging plan to become an integrated energy company, they claim. Um, they've said that emissions from its operations will be 30 35% lower by 2030, helping to deliver net zero um, emissions. Um, over the same period, BP's oil and gas production is expected to reduce by at least 1 million barrels of oil equivalent a day, or 40% from 2019 level. So it's a real shift in what they're in their core business. Um, Helge Lund, their chairman, has said energy markets are fundamentally changing, shifting towards low carbon driven by societal expectations, technology and changes in consumer preferences. Um, the only thing I'd like to add here is it feels a bit like these companies are laying claim to being the sort of drivers behind uh, renewables and climate change, when really I feel that, that there has been a societal impact and they're reacting to how society is now changing itself on the back of COVID-19, various re recessions and, you know, perhaps a younger generation paying more attention to climate change. So I think it's a bit cynical of, of, of uh, these big companies to be claiming that they're changing their corporate strategy because they've identified that, you know, the world needs change. If they've only just identified that in 2019, then, <laughs> then they need to, you know, make perhaps another MBA is on the cards. Um, the company has also set out a new financial frame to support of this fundamental shift and how it allocates capital towards carbon and energy transition activities. So I think as brokers, you know, there really is going to be a shift from, from these big companies and they, they are going to actually allocate capital towards making a, making a go of these projects. Um, but, you know, Again, cynically, this strategy was announced as BP released the second quarter 2020 results that showed the company posted a loss of $16.8 billion um, compared with a profit of $1.8 billion for a period a year earlier. You know, we all know the conditions why this loss has come around, but uh, I can't help but feel there's some correlation between identifying this huge new strategy and, and, and their loss. Their um, share price went up 6.5% yesterday, though, so the market clearly buys it. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but then, but then a lot of a lot of things are on, are on the rally this morning. You know, but there's a, I'm not sure. I can't get my head around some of the correlations going on in the market. Perhaps we need Alistair Petty to come back in and explain. You know, <laughs> exactly to, ex, to to identify some trends. Obviously, not advise on what we should be buying, but just to identify uh, what we, what we should be buying. Anyway, that's it from me. Cool. Thank you, Alex. Uh, I've got a quick one just on TikTok. Talking of the uh, younger generation. Uh, their founder this has been uh, defending the plan of the Microsoft sale. This is obviously around what uh, our Lord Saviour, the President of the United States, has been saying about uh, TikTok and the next stage of the the spat between China and the US. 
Um, the company has said that they see no choice to uh, to be able to abide by U.S. law. They have to have that uh, U.S. owned. Uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., they're trying to avoid any action by that committee. I know that we've previously seen in the news stories about Huawei and 5G, especially in the U.K., which have gone the same way as the U.S., of uh, banning its use, trying to take it out of circulation for that that network and the concerns about national security and and the Chinese growth in in global affairs and it's trying to impose itself more. But um, it's, it's seen that many people do think that you know, this is setting somewhat of a dangerous precedent of saying that you know a company must be bought by a US if you know otherwise we'll we'll just sanction you from 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 our, our national national base national committees. And of course, Microsoft are very concerned on the other side as one of the main purchasers of, of that company that they're going to see Chinese retaliation. And it's um, it's quite clear from the Chinese reaction to it that they're, they're not particularly pleased. Um, they've accused the US of launching a smash and grab raid. Uh, and <laughs> I, like, I do really like this uh, last quote, um, which is uh, from their uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. If everyone were to follow the U.S. practice, then anyone can invoke national security to take similar measures against a U.S. company. The U.S. should not open this Pandora's box, otherwise it will swallow the bitter fruit. I, I do oh, wow. hate I hate to bring this up, but I, the U.S. is actually following an example and using national security legislation to block foreign ownership of companies set by none other than the, than the PRC itself as well. So, uh, so, so it's, it's quite interesting to see... Uh, to see this go both ways, but yeah. There, there is no innocent person in this argument. No, no, there is no. I do like the well. fact that, uh, that the Donald is stating that the USA will have to get a finder's fee on any transaction that Microsoft may or may not transact <laughs> yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. Cool. So let's move on to our markets. Thank you for all those news stories. Um, Kerry, we want to start with you in terms of freight. A lot of action seeing? this week, actually. Uh, we did say last week that we thought there we would be finding a floor on the Cape size, and indeed, it's rallied very strongly. With the five TC average moving up to twenty thousand seven hundred nearly uh, yesterday. Uh, that's up over four thousand dollars since last week at this time. Uh, the paper has moved as well, not quite as rapidly, but the uh, September contract trading up at uh, around twenty one thousand this morning. That's up around two and a half thousand dollars on this time last week. It's worth noting that the rally is limited to the front end at the moment. Uh, the back end is just inching up. The Cal 21 trading up only about 200 bucks on last week. Uh, the Panamax has also rallied quite strongly. Uh, the 4TC average pushed up to uh, 10,500 yesterday. Uh, that's about 1,700 up on this time last week. And the prompt months also jumping actually more strongly than the capes, interestingly enough, uh, finally rallying properly on the uh, on the Panamax by $3,000 on the September contract to trade up at 13125 this morning, uh, as you can see on our live pricing app. Cool. Thank you, Kerry. Tom, why don't we come to you on, on iron or what we see seeing in terms of the market movements? The last uh, big, big movements this week uh, and big movements up again. Um, so this time last week, uh, we were talking about August contract uh, being around 107.65. Uh, we are currently pricing that at $115.85. So a massive move at the front and looking a bit further back. Uh, the Q4, we were talking around 99.5-ish, uh, trading $105 currently. So a huge move up. Um, across the iron ore complex this week. Um, 
most people are a bit bewildered at the strength of the move. Um, I think the dollar weakness is, you know, helping, um, helping with that, certainly. But in terms of sort of just to, to, to highlight how strange the price action is at the moment, coking coal, which is another component part of um, making steel, is normally factors, you know, many, 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 not many, many times, but considerably more expensive than iron ore. It's sort of an unwritten rule of this sort of steel complex that coking coal is more expensive than iron ore. Um, and we're basically at parity as of today. Um, yeah, and that is on iron ore strength uh, and coking coal weakness. So, you know, the market is all sorts of upside down at the moment. <laughs> uh, no, the last time I recall that coking coal uh, becoming cheaper than iron ore was, I think, gosh, seven seven years ago. So, so I looked into this this morning uh, and it hasn't crossed it in 10 years. In 2014, it got very, very close. Um so the S&P have an index that marries up the sort of the ratio between uh, coking coal and iron ore. And it got up to 98% in 2014, the price parity. Um, yeah. And it's at 99.6% today or yesterday yeah. rather. Um, but it, it hasn't actually ever gone um, uh, gone above 100% as it were um, in the last 10 years. So it, it it's it's crazy. Um, so, I mean, what's been driving that realistically? Um, it's a good question. Um, I think the, um, the, the, the demand that is coming from China, I think, yeah, conversely to, to what we're seeing with a lot of other products globally is that because of the, the trade spat that is, you know, getting stronger and stronger and deeper and deeper between the U S and, um, and uh, and China, China have come up with this policy of you know domestic first and, and onshoring stuff and making sure they are you know individually uh, going to be okay. And I think that what people are reading into that is that that's going to increase uh, a lot of domestic spend uh, infrastructure recovery is going to have to be uh, led entirely domestically. Um, so that they the market seems to be viewing as infrastructure projects are, are going to. Bring the bring China out of um, the doldrums. Um, the recovery has been strong, and you know I think people are now you know the, the numbers that we've seen in the last week or so coming out of China around um, you know, some of the industrial numbers um, do point to a, a genuine V-shaped recovery. Um, so yeah, the, there is positive figures coming out of there, but the strength of the rally that we've seen this week I think has flummoxed a lot of people. Um, it, it also doesn't explain away the steel inventories that are they're also no, building up. Exactly. Uh which are just building and building and building. And and as we've said, I think on the last four podcasts, that would normally be a fairly strong indicator <laughs> <laughs> that the price needs to come down. Um yeah, we've talked about steel margins of late. Um Hebe rebar steel margin is now dropped below fifty one, uh, which is you know historically low. Uh, and steel margins, again, in normal trading conditions are a fairly strong indicator of what the iron ore price should do. And if they are getting close to close to zero, then the iron ore price normally corrects quite aggressively. But that's not been the case and continues to not be the case. Um, port stocks are building uh, and blast furnace demand on iron ore has reached a, a high. Um, and the 
active consumption and import of high grade iron ore uh, over sort of medium grade uh, stuff that comes out of out of Australia is is getting more and more attractive, which is Brazilian uh, imports normally, um, which I think is helping to drive the price as well because there's still that fundamental mistrust I think of whether Vale will come through. Um, so that's interesting. Speaking to our analyst as well this week around that sort of move to high grade. Normally when that happens as well, you would expect to see scrap consumption um, increasing uh, through the electronic arc furnaces as well, uh, as it's sometimes at the right price point, it can become a better option. But what he's told me is that what we've seen of late is that because a lot, so much of the scrap uh, sources are controlled by the steel mills at the moment, every time the arc furnace margin gets into positive territory, they just squeeze the price of scrap up and basically mm. kill the EAFs. Um, so the scrap consumption hasn't really moved in line with what you'd expect it to do so as well. So it, it's it's crazy days, really. Um, and we will see where we end up next week. But uh, I, I would not want to comment where that could end up or not. Cool. Thank you, Tom. Um, unfortunately, it is much, much more boring in the in the oil markets. We're not really doing anything at all. We have pushed up this morning. Uh, but according to Reuters, they are noting that the equivalent number of, of 40 million barrels of major oil contracts were sold last week. Uh, they sold uh, 36 million barrels of crude, refined products, 5 million barrels, uh, and also net sales of Brent were down minus 21 for comparison of, of that. WTI minus 15 gasoline minus 2 million, uh, European gas will minus 5 million. So we've we've talked to a kind of general sense the week before of it was slightly moving into more British territory, especially those money managers and the positions they were putting on, but seems to have taken a step back again. Uh, that being said, um, in terms of fuel oil markets, we've, we've seen previously what happened to the East-West. That's the difference between Singapore fuel and uh, Rotterdam, European <clears throat> fuel, which almost came to parity. We could see a kind of reversing of that now as we're seeing much stronger physical market in the Singapore. Uh, import estimates for August are one and a half to two million tonnes, which were down from two to 2.5 million tonnes in July. So much less coming into Singapore. We've seen an increase in the amount of, of bunkering, stronger physical market, and also those Asian refiners, which we talked about, which have been reducing the amount that they're, they're refining for the new very low sulfur fuel oil product. Uh, have cut production so we could see a reversal and get back to more normal levels of that kind of 20 30 dollars on the 0.5 percent a difference for the for the singapore versus the the western markets um, a nice change i guess for the products but really not much happening on the crude uh, tom back to you any of the other points in terms of supply and demand why we're seeing this quite incredible market on the iron ore at the moment no nothing more to add from me chris uh, Kerry, what about you for the supply and demand? What yeah, we well, look, there are drivers on both sides here, particularly on the capes. Um, the excess tonnage that had been plaguing um, the supply side, uh, particularly in the east, has been drained away. And interestingly, this is mainly due to problems with crew changeover rules in China and coronavirus testing procedures, uh, which has led to a lot of congestion building up at Chinese ports. Uh, that's tying up quite a bit of the tonnage in the Pacific. Uh, and that has been occurring just at a time when these sort of recent record highs on the uh, physical iron ore price has led the Aussie miners to, to really ramp up exports again. 
Uh, and so for once, this means it's the C5, the Aussie China route on the capes that's been driving this market north. Um, you know, usually we, we talk so much about Brazil, China being the primary driver, but in this case, it's the Pacific absolutely leading the charge here um, and dragging up the rates on the, the C3 Brazil, China route uh, after them, essentially, um, because of this unique crewing situation that is causing so much congestion right now. Um, so, yeah. I would say that one thing to note on this is the back-end contracts have not moved nearly as much as the front-end contracts on the paper, um, which is probably indicative of the fact that whilst the market looks very bullish right now, I think people recognize that this is primarily a temporary crewing issue um, that's taking so much tonnage off the market right now. and. Uh, and uh, and so we're not yet ready to commit to uh, to a longer term bullish view going into Cal 21, for example. So okay. thank you, Gary. So some points on on oil before we move on to some of the other markets for closing. Um, in terms of supply, we, we noticed previously that uh, OPEC obviously reducing their, their cut amount. You've got two billion barrels wiggle room now in, in what they can produce. And that's definitely going to have an impact on, on supply side. Um, Russia have said that they're going to be increasing their crude oil production by 400,000 barrels per day as part of this uh, new amended agreement. An interesting thing to, to note here on this is that heavier crudes usually come from Urals uh, in Russia uh, and the Middle East. With this kind of relaxing of, of the strict uh, production of crude, you could start to see a change in what's being produced in terms of refining, the impact that it has on the kind of more residual fuels, you'll have a higher percentage of those. So what we've seen is a very high or very strong high sulfur fuel oil crack with with more potential for more heavier crews. They could yeah. be producing a, a larger percentage of that without increased demand for that high sulfur fuel oil. You could then see a widening between that kind of that very low sulfur fuel oil and that high sulfur fuel oil. Uh, again, which has really come down from those January levels, which is 320 on the front month. Now we're down yeah. to 60, 70. So we could actually see uh, a strengthening of that of that spread uh, impacted from that. And in terms of uh, demand, a really interesting point from the China-US trade deal. So last year, China agreed to purchase some $25.3 billion worth of American oil products. So we're halfway through, we're over halfway through. 2020, uh, and they've only completed 5% of that target. <laughs> Just to give you, a, you know, an impact of, yeah. of this virus, everything else is going on. And of course, the souring of the relationship between them, uh, the two countries is not going very well for phase one of the US-China trade deal. So China only imported 45,000 uh, barrels per day of US oil in the first half of 2020, compared to 85,000 barrels per day this period last year. So even with the commitment, they're not producing what they did last year. So a real impact there for one of the largest users of, of oil, crude oil. Uh, and China seems to really be starting to lose interest uh, in, in imports, especially when we saw those record levels the last couple of months in May and, May and June. The next, um, in terms of numbers of those very large tankers bringing, bringing crude into the country, the last three months has fallen by 12 to 111. Uh, this has been up to over 120 those kind of midsummer months when it was okay. at the high of importing. So it does seem that this is going to be a trend that continues of lower imports into into China, which has driven a lot of the, the coming back of demand recently. So starting of, of, of movements of, of things, but I think that's probably a reason why we're not really seeing much happening on, 
on the oil markets so far. But let's move on to some some final markets for closing. Alex, you've got some a point on uh, tankers. To, yeah, to so um, in recent weeks, natural gas prices have been booming. Uh, usually cold weather increases demand for natural gases, obviously for heating and whatnot, but with greater development infrastructure, you know, in the warmer weather, we're now driving um, a demand for air conditioning. This trend can clearly be seen in the paper LPG freight prices, a clear upward movement in LPG spot prices since June, with a spot now around $64 a metric tonne. Um, you know, uh, it seems as the months continue, more news comes out about LPG and LNG growth in the shipping industry, and with companies slowly realising the potential of these gas-carrying vessels, uh, we think that the LPG curve will remain at high levels and see steady, sustainable growth as owners, charters, hedges and speculators join the natural gas FFA party. Cool. Thank you, Alex. And so final things on the fertiliser market. So we noticed last week that the market was definitely firming. And after a slight pause uh, midweek last week, we uh, have now seen uh, a resumption of that uh, rally on prices. This has mainly been driven by the kind of tenders from, from India. Uh, we saw a new recent, recent tender on Friday securing 700,000 metric tons of urea, and that was pushing up above the market $19 and $15 higher uh, for the East and the West prices, respectively, uh, than the previous round. Most significant moves have been followed, actually, the start of this week, which has come in with uh, even more tenders. Our RCF coming in this side, India's, India's desperation to secure additional volume for their domestic uh, production. Uh, has really started to put the rockets on the bottom of an already quite firm market. The same is true of uh, Nola Urea, and that's also continued to firm. Uh, we saw our Q4 on Saturday, $234, up from $227 uh, the previous Friday. And then this has moved up to, to now, where we're seeing Q4 more than uh, up to $250. So really starting to ramp up on those, on those prices, a real firm market. Uh, on the rear, the Nolo rears on the background, you know, on the, the coattails of a very firm international market generally for fertilizers. So another market which is following iron ore's lead on being incredibly, incredibly strong. So uh, any final points before we wrap up for this week, our 19th episode? That's it for me. I think that's it for me as well. Cool. So on this Wednesday, the 5th of August, thank you to my three guests and to listeners listening in. Do please join us for our 20th episode next week. Uh, so thank you, everyone. And join us next week. Cheers. Yeah.